We have been in a series on the book of Habakkuk. And if you'll remember, when we started this series, we opened up to chapter one and we found a man who was wrestling with God. But now we come to chapter three and we find a man, the same man who's worshiping God. Uh, chapter three, verse one says, a prayer of Habakkuk, uh, the prophet. And then in verse 17, it says that this prayer, he gives it to the choir master. You know what that means? It means that this wasn't just Habakkuk's personal prayer. This prayer was for all the people of God, which means that this book is also an invitation. It's an invitation to you and to me to go through the journey that Habakkuk has been through, to wrestle with God until we worship him. How would you know if you've made it to that place? that you've wrestled with God until you are worshiping him. Well, that's what I want to look at this evening. And I want to answer that question by looking at Habakkuk's posture, Habakkuk's praise, and his plea. But before I turn to look at that, I'm going to pray because I just saw that my last page of notes was completely blank. So we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would come and would empower my memory and my speech. Lord, we do come before you because you want to speak to your people. And we ask that at the end of this, we might come to the place that Habakkuk came, lost in wonder, love, and praise because you desire to be worshipped by your people. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Habakkuk's posture. In verse 16, Habakkuk says that he has resolved to wait quietly for the day of trouble. Now, to understand how, how huge those words are, you have to think about where we've been. Right? When Habakkuk started off in this book, he asked God, why is there so much injustice and how long will it last? He starts with these questions and then God gives him an answer. But after God gives him his answer, Habakkuk doesn't like it. And so then he's not just questioning. He starts arguing. And yet here, this man who has been wrestling is now quiet and waiting. He's gone from questioning to quiet, from accusation to adoration. He's gone from distress to doxology, from railing to reverence. Habakkuk is a changed man. What's happened? What happened to Habakkuk? Well, note that nothing in Habakkuk's situation has, ha uh, has changed. Like, God's judgment is still coming on his people. Violence is still all around the community. The Chaldeans are on the move. Nothing at all has changed for Habakkuk. But everything has changed in Habakkuk. And the key to understand this change, I think, is verse 2. Habakkuk says, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Habakkuk has learned to fear the Lord. He has come to the place where he is in reverent awe before his maker. 
Now, we like to say in prayer often, you know, Lord, we're in awe of you. Oftentimes, though, I wonder if those aren't just pious words. But I want you to know that for Habakkuk, they're not pious words. He doesn't just say it. He feels it. Look at verse 16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. See, when Habakkuk hears the response from God, it leaves him undone. His body is literally palpitating before God. His skeletal structure won't hold him up anymore, and neither will his legs. And there he is, quivering. And there he is, comforted. It's actually in quivering reverence that Habakkuk finds quiet and comfort. Did you know that one of the most comforting things that can ever happen to any of us is that we come to stand in awe and reverence before the Almighty, that we become undone in his presence? Think about it. Job, when he is wrestling with God, God comes and he speaks to him out of the whirlwind. And then after God speaks to him out of the whirlwind, for chapter after chapter after chapter, we come to what I believe is the, the high point of the book, the pinnacle of the book. And here's what Job says. I retract my words and am comforted in dust and ashes. And I'm comforted in dust and ashes. You see, when Job is undone before God, that's when he finds his comfort there. Let me ask you a question this evening. When is the last time that you have been undone before God? When is the last time when you have come in awestruck reverence before the Almighty? Because here's the paradox. You will never be comfortable in this world until you have a God who can make you uncomfortable. But because a God that a God that is not able to undo you cannot uphold you. A, a God that a God that can satisfy your questions is not a God who can satiate your soul. You see, only a God who can confound you. This is what Habakkuk is learning. Only a God who can confound you can actually console you. See, the only way that we could ever live without fear and anxiety. I mean, do you feel fear and anxiety this evening? The only way that you're ever going to be able to live without fear and anxiety in this world is if you have a God that's more terrifying than the terror and you have a God who's more awesome than the anxiety. See, for some of us, we, we fear and we're anxious and our God is too small. Habakkuk is, become, is coming before a big God. And he has learned to fear. That's the posture of his soul. And that's where he finds quiet. Have you?
let's consider a bit more this God who Habakkuk comes before. Let's consider Habakkuk's praise. In verses 3 through 15, Habakkuk utilizes all these images from Israel's history, and he summons them in order to to talk about the grandeur of this God that he praises. In verses 3 through 7, he mentions Sinai and the wilderness wanderings. In verses in verse 11, he talks about the sun standing still at Gideon. In verse 15, we have an allusion to the Red Sea. Uh, he's, he's marshalling all these images from Israel's history and what God has done in order to praise him. And he's doing it in order to focus on really two aspects of God, as I can tell. First, God's unrivaled power and glory. I mean, I can't go through all of these and explain everything about verses 3 through 15, but let's just look at a couple. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says that God stares at the nations and it startles them. All he has to do is look at the nations and it startles them. When I was in elementary school, uh, I... um, I was at a school where there was a teacher, and this teacher, her name was Mrs. Cooper. And no one wanted Mrs. Cooper. I got Mrs. Cooper. The Lord had something in store for me. And Mrs. Cooper, at the, at, if you were at lunch, all it took was she got her mug, and she would just bang it on the table. And the whole lunch room room went silent. And if you were not facing her, it was like she had eyes that were like lasers in the back of your head, at least my head, because it always seemed to be me. And I would turn around and there she was looking at me. Mrs. Cooper could stare and I was undone. God doesn't need a mug and it's not second graders. He simply looks at civilizations and they crumble before him. In verse four, Habakkuk is talking about, he's using imagery from from Sinai and how God appeared in his glory of fire and light. It it even has the image of, of horns of light coming out of God's head. And and get this. Do you remember that glory? That glory that was so strong that Moses had to hide. That glory that was so strong that when it reflected off of Moses, other people had to hide. That they had to hide their face from the glory of God, otherwise they would just be undone by it. Habakkuk says in this prayer in verse 4 that God was veiling his own glory. It's like the sun. I mean, you stare at the sun, it can hurt you. You stare at the sun too long, it'll hurt your eyes. You stand in the sun too long, it'll hurt your skin. And so what do we do? We cover ourselves. We're talking about a sun, though, that is, that is, you know, I don't know, 93 million light years away or something. The sun is so big and so powerful that even at that great distance, we have to veil ourselves. Habakkuk says this is the glory and power of God. It is greater than that. And he was veiling himself at Sinai and still people hid from it. See, when it comes to the power and glory, God has no equal. When I was young, um, my father and uh, would wrestle with me. 
And he would often wrestle with me. And he was so much bigger and stronger than me that one of his kind of um, signature moves to show me that I was not dad and he was is and that like I really couldn't win is that he would take my own hand and he would start hitting me with it. <laughs> and then he would say, stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Why are you hitting yourself? Stop hitting yourself. I, I was, it was like my dad was so strong. He just wanted to show that he could beat me with my own power. He could beat me with my own hand. Look at verse 14. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. That is, God pierced with his enemies' own weapons. His enemies. God destroys his enemies with their own weapons. That's how powerful and how strong God is. Habakkuk's focused on God's unrivaled power and glory, but not just that. Habakkuk is also focused on God's mission. The picture that Habakkuk paints in these verses is not just a God of unrivaled power and glory. It's a God of unrivaled power and glory who was on the move. Look at verse 3. God came from Teman. Verse 12, you march through the earth. This is God who is on a mission. Some of you may know that um, Prince Harry has recently moved to the neighborhood. Did you know this? Yes, Prince Harry has moved to the neighborhood. And there are some folks that I found out uh, recently, college students, who they decided that, you know, Harry has moved to the neighborhood, so we have to find Harry and they were on a mission. So here's how it went. They, they didn't know where he lived, but they did some reconnaissance work and they found out that he drives a black Range Rover. Then they Google search and figure out what his house looks like. Then, not only that, it didn't have the address of the house. They didn't know where the house was. So they scour Google Earth looking for matches. And they match up the precise angle of the tennis court in the pool. And then they know that's Harry's house. Yes, this is your well-spent money, parents, gone to good work and education. Yes, teachers, you can be sure that your education is going and being put to good use. They are on a mission. They find Harry's house. They drive down a private drive. And then they sort of climb a fence. When they don't see Harry there, they turn around. And as they're driving out of the private drive, all of a sudden, a black Range Rover comes by. And sure enough, they had hit their target. They were on a mission. God... Habakkuk says, is on a mission. God is on a mission and he will stop at nothing. What is he on a mission for? Look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. God is on a mission and do you know what God's mission is? It's your salvation. And he will stop at nothing. He will countenance nothing that gets between you and salvation because he will bring salvation to his people. Let me ask you a question. Do you realize that the God of unrivaled power and glory 
is singularly focused on a mission and will stop at nothing until he brings you salvation. Do you realize that? Because when you do, that's what brings quiet. That's what causes our restless souls to rest. Here, God's mission brings Habakkuk quiet. But here's my question. Why is he shaking? I understand why he's quiet, but why is he shaking before God? Why the palpitations? Do you want to know why? Because Habakkuk knows that God is singularly focused on the salvation of his people. And he will stop at nothing. And nothing and no one will get in the way of him bringing salvation to his people including his own people. And so he knows that Israel is not saved from judgment. They are saved through judgment. And I hope you know that the same is true for you and me. When God comes, he will stop at nothing to bring salvation to us, and he will undo and wipe out everything, including, including the bits of ourselves that keep him from bringing salvation to us. You see, judgment starts with the household of God, Peter says. Or to use Jesus' imagery in John 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? And then he says, whoever abides in me, he prunes and they bear, bear much fruit. Do you know what happens when you prune something? It's cut. And then other branches are cut away that don't bear fruit. But get this, every branch comes under the knife. Some come under the knife and they are cleansed and they live. And they bear fruit. Some come under the knife and they're cut away and they die. But everyone must come under the knife. And Habakkuk knows. Habakkuk realizes that for that for Israel to be saved, they will not escape the fire and the flood but they will be refined and cleansed. So he quietly quakes because he knows that in order for Israel to be healed, she must come under the knife. And in order for Israel to live, Israel must pass through death. And that's what brings us to his plea and why he prays like he does in verse two. Look at verse two. In verse 2, Habakkuk begs God to do three things in the midst of years. This phrase, in the midst of years, means the time between God's initial judgment on Israel and his ultimate judgment on all his enemies when the last enemy is destroyed. And in light of God's coming to save his people through judgment, Habakkuk pleads for three things. He pleads for life, he pleads for knowledge, and he pleads for mercy. He pleads for life. Look. He says, 
He asked God for reviving. When, when Habakkuk asked God for reviving, he is literally saying, give life. Now remember, remember what Habakkuk's initial complaint was. Remember his argument in chapter 1, verse 12. God, shall we not die? And God gave him the answer, no. No, Habakkuk, you shall not live or die. The righteous shall live. They will live by faith. And here what Habakkuk is doing is he is showing what faith looks like. He is exercising it by casting himself on the God who can bring life. And he's saying, God, bring life. In the midst of the judgment, bring life. Sustain our life. Cause us to live. Do you realize that every moment of every day, we, we are debtors of mercy. We are debtors to God and we are dependent on him to bring life constantly. This Christianity thing is not something where you walk the aisle at some point in time, sign a card, and then step away. You have to receive life continually. Faith casts itself on God. And Habakkuk, in putting this in a prayer for God's people, he's actually inviting us to do it. To pray it, to say, God, give life. Habakkuk pleads for life. Habakkuk pleads for knowledge. He says, in the midst of years, make it known. In the time of judgment, reveal yourself, God. You know, we often live in a world without windows. What I mean by that is we live in a world that is opaque. We don't see that that behind and through all the events and circumstances of our lives is a very busy and very active God who is on a mission. Because sin clouds our eyes from what God is doing in this world. And so we have to pray, God, open our eyes, reveal yourself, reveal what you're doing. See, Habakkuk knows that that, that what God is doing is he's working for his ultimate salvation of his people and his world. But he knows that he can't see it. So he's saying, God, reveal yourself. And we need to pray, God, reveal yourself. Reveal yourself to be at work in and through this pandemic. Reveal yourself to be at work in and through this failing business. Reveal yourself to be at work in and through health crises and interpersonal conflicts. God, reveal yourself. Make it known. Because we won't see you if we we don't. I recently heard someone say, never let a perfectly good crisis go to waste. In crisis, we have opportunities that get presented. In this crisis, God is presenting us with opportunities. So we need to pray, Lord, give us knowledge, make it known. Finally, Habakkuk pleads for mercy. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. Now, commentators are quick to point out that this word wrath here, it it actually is not the word that we commonly use for wrath. It it means agitation or uh, disquiet, unrest. Similarly, the word for mercy here is not the word that we think of. It's not God's covenant, steadfast, loyal love. It's actually a word that is used that means basically compassion. It's a word that's the kind of love and compassion that a parent feels for a child. It's the kind of compassion that you feel in your guts, in your stomach, when you ache. So what Habakkuk is saying is, is... In the midst of this shaking world, God, show compassion and affection. In a time of unrest, of turbulence, in a time when the foundations of society and its most stable institutions are being shaken, show us compassion. God, while you spank us, hold us. 
while you remove why why you why why you why you remove the, the cancer while you reset the arm sing over us may we feel your compassionate love in the midst of the judgment as you bring us under the purifying fire of judgment, we need to know, God, that you are for us and that your affections remain absolutely unchanged. Right now, the world is being shaken. And God is shaking the church. People are coming to the end of themselves. Churches and Christians are, are having to ask, well, what am I living for? And what's this whole thing all about? God, as you shake us, sing over us, kiss us, remind us that you're our daddy, that you love us, that everything you're doing is for us and for our salvation. Well, we know that God answered Habakkuk's prayer you know how he answered that prayer? Look back up. He says that God went out for the salvation of his people, for the salvation of his anointed. The word means Christ. And surely 2,000 years ago, God went out for the salvation of his anointed one, Jesus Christ, when he lay languishing in the grave. And he brought him through the judgment and into the other side that he might save all his people. And do you know how he did it? With the own arrows of the enemy. He let Satan use his greatest weapon against Jesus, death. And with his own arrows, he crushed the head of the household of the wicked, even the devil himself. This is good news. Let's continue to pray this prayer, pleading for, for life, pleading for knowledge, pleading for mercy, knowing that God has in Jesus Christ already started to answer it. Amen.